Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, and thanks so much for being with us. Let me start by offering my condolences to all those who lost family and friends due to Hurricane Ida, whether in New Orleans, New York, New Jersey, across a broad swath of this country. Now, here's the thing about Hurricane Ida. It is now some days after it has wrought this destruction. And certainly the weather has moderated across most of the places where Hurricane Ida did the most damage. Yet, it is not over for a lot of people. Aside from the people who lost loved ones, and it'll never be over for them, you do have to take into account the idea that now people have to argue with their insurance companies about how to deal with flooded basements or damage to life and limb and housing. There's a lot that comes in the wake of something like this. We've talked before about the lessons that ought to be learned from natural disasters, be they floods or fires, because fires are still going on on the West Coast. We'll talk about that in subsequent episodes. But the first topic I want to discuss in this episode of the podcast is a simple one, freedom. I've always known what it meant to me. But I have to say, it seems to have gotten twisted somehow to mean a contradictory set of terms and even values in 21st century America. We see, for example, people in some parts of the country equate the use of a face covering, or not, as a matter of freedom. Yet those same places and those same people strip away a basic freedom, that is, what a woman chooses to do with her own body. We'll get into the Texas abortion law a little later on, but you get my drift here, I think. So what does freedom mean? What is it? And how do we know when it's been achieved, if at all? All this flooded into my brain as I attended a performance at London's Jazz Cafe recently. As one of the performers reprised Richie Haven's anthemic Freedom, which became famous at Woodstock over a half century ago, I started to think about the time I was privileged to interview Richie Havens and then attended a performance by the man himself in New York's Greenwich Village. He performed Freedom, and although I didn't go to Woodstock, I suddenly realized during that performance what Richie was speaking about and the fact that he was speaking directly to me and everyone else in the audience as he sang those deceptively simple words and phrases. The crowd that night exploded as he concluded what had to be a near half-hour performance of the song. And I have to admit, I was one of them. About two weeks later, I was walking across a block in Chelsea, when who do I see walking across the street in the opposite direction? Richie Havens. I felt compelled to stop him and explain what his performance of freedom meant to me. He smiled and said thank you for being so moved by his music. I could tell he was in a hurry, so we both moved right along. But all of this came back to me in London the other night. That, and my own self-constructed meaning of freedom, that went back to Martin Luther King in the early 1960s when I was just a kid. Back then, freedom was about sitting at a lunch counter of your choice, being free to vote, being free to live where you wanted, the basic components of the civil rights movement. As a kid, freedom was distilled through the experiences of my parents, who had experienced overt racism on a scale that I did not understand until later in my life. As I got older, 
my concept of freedom morphed into a much more personal construct. I wanted freedom to be who I was and what I was becoming. I realized along the way that I wasn't alone. I gravitated to a circle of friends who wanted exactly the same thing. We would come together weekly in party spaces, black, white, straight, gay, young and old. And even now, all these years later, people articulate what we were looking for in terms of freedom. And I still, on occasion, gravitate to that same circle of friends so many years later. Little did I know at the time that there were those who would deny us that freedom because it didn't suit their money-making pursuits at the time. And now, as an old man, I hear an interpretation of Richie Haven's music from so long ago, and the concept of what it means to be free comes flooding back. Along with that, there's the very real question of how free we really are. Much of our lives are lived out online, where just about anyone who wants to sell you something has access to your most sensitive details. As for mask wearing, people who think not wearing one represents freedom are deluding themselves. Your freedom ends right at the point where you increase my chances of getting sick exercising it. And yet, the freedom I've always sought has still proved to be elusive. I live in the hope that my children and grandchildren will live in freedom not as I define it, but as they define it. And I hope no one, and I emphasize no one, loses track of what real freedom is. Up next, Texas does have a new abortion law that may be the first step in rolling back Roe v. Wade. This is The Intersection. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Number One, and you are listening to The Intersection with my hero, Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Glad you're with us. Much has been said and will be said about Texas' new abortion law that the Supreme Court has signed off on. We need to separate fact from fiction if we are to understand and fight this law. First, the law prohibits abortion once cardiac activity can be detected in an embryo. That effectively means even before a woman knows she's pregnant. Practically, a woman would have about two weeks to confirm a pregnancy and obtain an abortion. The law makes no exceptions in the case of rape or incest. Again, no exception in the case of rape or incest. And here's the twist. Officials in the state are barred from enforcing this new law. That is, strangely enough, left to private citizens. That's right, ordinary, everyday folks. This makes it difficult to challenge in the courts on constitutional grounds. The citizen who decides to sue using the law doesn't have to have any connection to the woman deciding to end the pregnancy. If the citizen wins, they can collect up to $10,000 plus court costs. It makes Texans into bounty hunters, able to make money off any of the 7 million Texas women of childbearing age who choose to terminate a pregnancy. 
If all this weren't bad enough, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, refused to block the law in a one-paragraph ruling. Democrats, from President Joe Biden to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on down, condemned the court's decision, or lack of action in this case. That's to be expected. Yet I must say, I worked in radio for 40 years, and I could just about see this coming. Just about. Didn't see uh, the actual components of the law, but did see an attack on Roe v. Wade coming. Now, when I lobbied people, particularly in the black community, to register and vote, I always said that one major reason was to stop the Supreme Court from being stacked with conservatives. All these years later, that is precisely what we have. Go figure. Make no mistake, the Texas law and the high court's cowardly acquiescence in letting it be implemented is the most frontal assault on the rights of women to control their own bodies in recent memory. Consider this. In Texas, wearing a mask to fight COVID is considered an individual choice. Yet the most personal decision a woman can make is no longer up to that woman. And who does this affect most? It's estimated that 70% of women in Texas who opt for abortions are black. And don't get it twisted. Officials in at least six other states have been waiting with bated breath for a court ruling that will allow them to move forward with their own draconian abortion laws. To me, it's especially telling that there is no mention of sanctions for the men who get women pregnant in that Texas law. I mentioned in a previous episode how voter suppression and the assault on a woman's right to choose go hand in hand in some states. Texas, of course, is one of them. That's because there are elected officials that see very clearly that the two go hand in hand. Deny, deny, deny. That's how it works. And there's not a whole lot Democrats in Congress can do. They can pass a bill in the House that protects a woman's right to choose, but the Senate remains a major stumbling block as long as it takes 60 votes to pass a bill. That would be called the filibuster. Some have argued that the filibuster that mandates a supermajority ought to be eliminated. Of course, there are people, even on the Democratic side of the aisle in the Senate, who are not down with that particular solution. Others say President Biden ought to add four more members to the Supreme Court to tilt the court toward a more liberal majority. Neither of those options are likely to happen in the near future, no matter their merits. I emphasize, no matter their merits. There's talk of a Hollywood boycott of the state of Texas, as well as other measures in the entertainment and sports communities. In my own fevered anger over the law and the ruling, I thought the women of Texas would simply move en masse to another state where their lawmakers are sane. That won't happen either. That doesn't mean, however, that Democrats and other people of goodwill ought to allow this law to stand without protest. The stakes, as with voter suppression, are high. They speak to the lives our children and grandchildren will live. I have stood and watched women of all childbearing ages walk into a family planning center to terminate a pregnancy. Anyone who thinks they take this decision lightly 
ought to think again. For many, it's the most wrenching decision they have ever made in their lives. In many cases, and this is important, in many cases, the men who get them pregnant are not there with them, offering the slightest bit of moral support as they go to terminate that pregnancy. This is not hippity hop to the barber shop, folks. Women make gut-wrenching decisions. In some cases, and I know of some cases, women have been on their way to get an abortion and have changed their minds and have borne children into this world. It is simply a matter of choice. Choice. Infringing on a woman's right to choose is an affront to women everywhere. Now, I say this knowing that there are societies around the world that have even more draconian restrictions on the lives of women. After all, we just left one of those places in Afghanistan. Asserting control over women is as old as mankind and humankind. As with voting rights, I thought for a brief moment that we had gotten past that. Silly me. And finally, in this episode, anti-vax talk show hosts and others end up on ventilators or worse. This is The Intersection. I'd like to know what you think. Leave a comment on my Facebook page or you can email me at mark at markreillymedia.com. Welcome back to The Intersection. For those of you who don't know, I worked for a good while as a radio talk show host. Unlike many of my colleagues, my mission was always to give voice to the voiceless. In fact, I found it very strange over my career to have attended a few talk show host conventions and looked around at my colleagues and thought to myself, what in the world am I doing here? I always found talk show hosts to be a kind of strange lot. Can't put my finger on what was strange about them, but they were strange. Nevertheless, even after my retirement, I've always followed the talk radio game. And make no mistake about it, it is a game. I read with more than a passing interest a story in the Washington Post about four talk show hosts. All were conservative, pro-Trump, proud anti-vaxxers. And then they got sick. All four died during the month of August. Two were based in Tennessee, two in Florida. They were obviously playing to their right-wing audience and standing against, and in some cases mocking, both vaccines and mask wearing. One, Phil Valentine, used the old Rush Limbaugh trick of turning their position into a song. In this case, Vaxman, based on the old Beatles song, Taxman. If you listen to right-wing talk radio, which I do not, you'll hear, I'm told, a lot of fevered hyperbole about the virus itself and those health and scientific experts who have helped to shape healthcare policy. This is simply radio. 
and it's simply radio hosts ensuring they get a paycheck for the next pay period. It saddens me, however, to think people listen to these people and take what they say as gospel. For the record, the four hosts who have passed away include Phil Valentine, Mark Bernier, Jimmy DeYoung, a preacher who is nationally syndicated, and Dick Farrell, who worked at several stations in Florida. To be fair, Valentine and Farrell both urged their audiences to get vaccinated after they got sick. And also, in fairness, there are conservative hosts who have for a while now urged their audiences to get vaccinated as well. Yet there are still people who speak to substantial radio audiences that spread misinformation and in some cases nonsense in the name of reflecting the views of their listeners. Even worse, I'm not at all sure that the passing of these four talk show hosts will cause even a small minority of their audiences to change their minds about getting vaccinated. Once some people get an idea in their heads, it becomes virtually impossible, impossible to dislodge it. One irony here is that the company that Phil Valentine worked for, Cumulus Media, has mandated vaccines for all 4,000 of their employees. Too late for Phil Valentine, though. And it's not just about COVID. Right-wing talk radio was also one of the primary spreaders of the lie that the 2020 election was stolen. When people challenged these spreaders of misinformation, they're very, very quick to hide behind the First Amendment. We're just expressing a point of view, they say. Unfortunately, that point of view, when it comes to a deadly virus, can cost lives. And one of the things that right-wing radio hosts have used in the past, and I think some of them continue to use, is the deliberate blurring of lines between news reporting and opinion spewing, for want of a better term. I remember one particular talk show host, who I won't name here, who called himself, in all his advertising, America's most trusted anchorman. That's right. Anchorman. Now, to me, Walter Cronkite, for those of you who remember, he was an anchorman. Tom Brokaw, anchorman. These were people whose job it was to, as objectively as possible, give people news and information. This particular right-wing talk show host was never an anchorman, yet he built himself as one and build himself as such in order to convince people that his views were as authoritative as those of an anchorman. They blurred those lines, folks, on purpose. And part of the reason why they can get away with this is the 1987 decision to rescind once and for all the Fairness Doctrine. The Fairness Doctrine used to say that if you had one point of view on the air, you had to have another point of view on the air. Eliminating the Fairness Doctrine led directly to the growth in conservative talk radio because they don't have to have an alternative view. All they have to have after the Fairness Doctrine was gutted was their own view or, rightly or wrongly, 
the views of their listeners. And certainly when it comes to voter suppression, certainly when it comes to the allegedly stolen 2020 election, and certainly when it comes to vaccines and mask wearing, you see these talk show hosts reflecting in some cases, and in some cases actually guiding the views of their listeners. And once you get that into a listener's head, it is very, very difficult to dislodge it. I don't care how much logic you throw at those folks. People don't like to end up being confronted with facts that are at variance with their own personal beliefs. It's called cognitive dissonance. And I may have mentioned in a past episode that I was taught about cognitive dissonance by the great professor Len Jeffries, who stood there one day when in, actually in my studio when we were off air and explained the entire concept to me. And I begin to understand now what cognitive dissonance means to people who don't want to wear a mask and consider that part of a personal freedom who don't want, who, by the way, at the same time, want to restrict women's personal freedoms. And people who believe the election was stolen, I don't care what happened. It was stolen. It was stolen. Trump won. And there are millions of people in America, millions, who believe this stuff. And conservative talk radio, and, and I don't necessarily want to bash on all conservative talk radio, because the fact of the matter is, I have had some friends in the past who have worked in conservative talk radio. I don't think they're all bad people. That's not really the issue. The issue is to what extent are they prepared to spread misinformation in service to an audience that already believes what they're saying. They are, in fact, preaching to the converted. Now, there are going to be people who say, well, the left does the same thing. Yeah, but there aren't as many left radio stations as there are right-wing radio stations. That's an imbalance that, with the end of the Fairness Doctrine, was bound to happen. And there are a lot of other reasons for it, and I, I don't necessarily want to get into all of them. However, facts are facts. Four talk show hosts, all anti-vax, anti-mask wearing, died in the month of August. There may be more. God help me, I don't want there to be any more. But there may be more because they're going against science. And the anti-vax brigade will lose when they go against science. It's not the first time commerce has cost lives and it will not be the last. One can only hope people get smarter. I'm keeping my money in my pocket on that. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well. <laughs>